welcome to Podchipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we're going to discuss what it means to be human. Let's start with a clip from Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens. I want to believe that there is something special about me, about my body, about my brain that makes me so superior to a dog or a pig or a chimpanzee. But the truth is that on the individual level, I'm embarrassingly similar to a chimpanzee. And if you take me and a chimpanzee and put us together on some lonely island and we had to struggle for survival, to see who survives better, I would definitely place my bets on the chimpanzee, <laughs> not on myself. The real difference between humans and all other animals is not on the individual level, it's on the collective level. Humans control the planet because they are the only animals that can cooperate both flexibly and in very large numbers. Unfortunately, our collective actions are harming the planet. In large part, we'll only be successful in using our gifts of flexibility and cooperation to restore planetary health if we get to grips with what it means to be human in the first place. I meet up with the British author, philosopher, and librettist Melanie Challenger to talk with her about her upcoming book, How to Be Human. Melanie writes on the relationship between humans and the rest of the living world. Challenger was born in Oxford and studied at Oxford University. Her first collection of poems, Galatea, won the Society of Authors Award. She was an Arts Council International Fellow with the British Antarctic Survey, which she used to research her nonfiction book on extinction. In that book, Melanie travels from the ruined tin mines of Cornwall to the abandoned whaling stations of South Georgia, to the Inuit camps of the Arctic, and to the heart of Antarctica. She writes that her chief interest was in gathering the history of how we'd become so destructive to the natural world and its inhabitants. The very notion of extinction, that species could be created and then disappear, remained unimagined until the late 18th century, when geologists began to gather evidence of the life forms that had once inhabited the Earth. Miss Challenger examines the psychological history and consequences of what it means to be a species that drives other species out of existence. I'm I meet up with Miss Challenger at the University of Cambridge's Botanical Garden. I start by asking Melanie what it means to be an environmental philosopher. I'm not a trained philosopher, but I kind of feel I've got to that stage where I probably have to own it now because essentially that's what I do. I'm trying to get at what the categories of life are, what nature is, those sorts of fundamental, woolly but important questions that we've been asking for thousands of years and still don't have clear answers for. Over many years now, over kind of 15 years now, I've been working with and talking to scientists, um, all of whom are doing work on the natural world or on humans or on organisms in different kinds of ways. In the book Extinction, yeah. it's you experiencing the natural world yourself. There's a lot of your own emotional reaction to the landscape and to what's been lost. 
I wanted to focus on was just the idea of extinction in all of its different manifestations. So just a meditation on extinction. And that was my just my starting point. Why that? Well, I suppose because I grew up, you know, in the way that my dad's generation grew up with a kind of nuclear, with a kind of atomic reality. I grew up with the Anthropocene reality, with the idea that there was massive biodiversity loss and, you know, extinction of species. And so I wanted to go out and just see where this had come from, how we'd got to this stage, and use just the concept of extinction to do that. And it really started through whales, um, because I, I love whales. In researching your book, Extinction, you went down to Antarctica and also met up with whaling communities in Chile. I went to all of the old whaling stations and saw these, you know, literally the kind of machinery that was used to industrialise whaling and got very involved. I and mean, whaling is an oil industry, an industry that's going to come have a boom and bust, how they think about it, who the individual players are, what psychologies are involved, and in the end what the outcome is. And that was, you know, the starting point of me starting to see the wider sort of historical patterns for how we can get into a really bad situation with something we're exploiting and be unable to prevent that from happening. I spent a lot of time in, in Cape Cod and Nantucket and um, you still feel, I mean, the whaling industry, the cultural aspect is really fascinating, just how people are so proud that they came from Portuguese whaling families. I read, you know, dozens and dozens of diaries of whalers from the kind of 1700s through to... Um, the 1950s and most of the people who were doing the actual work love the whales because whales are awesome and they they react to them as these incredible organisms and most of them um, express anxieties when they kill them and there's a degree of reverence the practical business of lifting a large whale like a fin whale or a blue whale out of the ocean and trying to butcher it is just unimaginable because the beast can't even be held in you can't even imagine how large they are when you see them many of them were proud of what they were doing they had incredible ecological knowledge but in the end you know they they needed to make their money no one individual was causing any of this but the whole system can still result in driving a species to near extinction what are the big things that that come to you especially as you're kind of thinking about philosophy and our uh, the systems of thinking about our place in the world? The first thing that came to me was it is very dynamic and complex out there. And there aren't going to be pathways out of our difficult relationship with nature that, that are going to be easy and um, acceptable to everybody. And that human beings aren't these horrible people. I mean, there are some of us who are not doing great things, but most of us are loving and love the natural world and very responsive to the natural world at an emotional level. But that's not going to mean we're not going to have a massive impact um, or find it very difficult to reverse the situation that we're in. So I suppose that led me to two points of view. The first was how do you better define what biophilia is? It's been seen as a kind of hazy feeling of affection that we have for nature. Well, that was present in all of my research for sure. But how can that um, feeling have more of a fundamental impact? Well, that question was very open and wasn't being well answered at the time. Then the other thing that became clear to me was that, you know, very loosely we have a very uncomfortable relationship with being 
an organism with life and death? What does it mean for us ourselves to be an organism? And what does how does that affect our psychology and the sorts of ways in which we're likely to think about how we should value the, the natural world, including ourselves? Why do you think we're so uncomfortable with our own mortality? After all, as Shinru Suzuki said, life is like stepping onto a boat which is about to sail out to sea and sink. Obviously, there's big cultural variability and there's variability through history and how individuals and how societies and cultures have viewed death. So accepting that, um, that said, it, there's good evidence that we have had taboos surrounding death in pretty much all societies and throughout as much history as we can see we began to bury our dead. We have, have gone on to um, ritualise death. And that ritualising in many societies you, usually means hiding it away in some way or formalising death in some way. Obviously, it's the business of organisms to try and survive, but not necessarily to not die. You know, it's the business of organisms to be able to survive long enough to pass on their DNA. We are an animal that is aware of our death in a way that most other animals aren't. I don't think we can say that definitively for all other species, um, but most of them aren't aware of it in being able to narrate it in their own minds. And of course, that has impacted on us and it impacts on all of us, of all, all cultures, whether or not it manifests in very different ways. Some cultures, like some of the ones that we have in the West today, where people are absolutely terrified de of death and are determined to overcome it through whatever technological or medical in intervention will allow it. I think our relationship with death is you know, and why, how we're going to think about that is really fundamental to our future at this point in time. Um, and I don't think we've come to terms with that question yet. So another big question is, so why are we so adamant, so, so focused on proving that we aren't animals? Well, you could tie that back to death. Well, I think I'm confident in saying that most of us want to survive. We want to flourish and we want to live for as long as possible. And we grieve massively for one another. We are irreplaceable beings. And, um, and the impact on death in our lives is unimaginable. Um, so the kind of death burden, if you like, on the human species is huge. But in, when it comes to the fact that we're driving other species to extinction and we're now thinking about our own extinction risk as a species, now I think death is coming into focus and what it is to be a human is coming into focus. So what is it that we value in ourselves? Why have we erected the idea that we are... Uh, that there's a dividing line, a value dividing line? We are a different entity to a whale or a mosquito or a plant but in the end you know we the evidence is there that we're you know there's continuity between us and other species we come from a common origin um, so what exactly is it that is the dividing line that makes our lives um, of primary importance and value heavy and all other species we regard 
as replaceable individuals and sometimes as replaceable species for that matter that are devoid of any intrinsic value because of our role in the changes to the earth systems and the ecosystems on the earth and the abundance and variety of life on the earth we're having to go back to really really ancient questions of how we categorize life why we think our our life or our mortality are of such significance and how we're going to categorize that as it shifts in the future I remember seeing this chart, Christian chart, with, you know, God and Jesus and Mary and then man and then woman and then children and then, you know, like livestock. There's been this sense of hierarchy with us. I mean, we're made in God's image and everything else isn't. The mythology of our superiority has been embedded in every single cultural facet. For most of our history, we haven't been able to make sense of our ability to talk, do the kinds of things that we plainly can see that other species can't do. You don't have to fall into the exceptionalist trap to nonetheless recognise that we are an extraordinary species and we do have a kind of cognitive capacity that is remarkable. It's still awesomely remarkable to have echolocation, you know, to be a sperm whale that's able to, you know, use part of its head to, <laughs> to get a visual image, you know, of, of prey in the depths of the ocean. All of those things are, are remarkable, of course. Um, but aren't those all, just to push back, aren't those all very anthropocentric views? We put value on the things that we have and we devalue things. So... Of course, we think we're exceptional because of our cognitive abilities, but that's a very human lens. I mean, just, just existing as life, isn't that sufficient? And many philosophers have argued for the intrinsic value of those things absent the human as the observer. You know, we can sympathise with how we built systems to explain that and stories to explain that. And on top, in the absence of better information, we have a very spiritual capacity. And we also had a psychology that I think was built to be able to be inclusive in a very flexible way. And by that, I mean, you know, we were talking about this scale of what you value. Well, that's shifted, hasn't it? So women, as you said, <laughs> have, have nudged their way higher up on that scale. But I think that um, we've always had groups of people, whether they're just groups who've got a different skin color or who've got some sort of genetic um, difference from the norm or who have got a different set of genitalia, who have been moved in and out of their categories. So we've got a flexible mind in terms of how we have a hierarchy. And while that exposes our hypocrisy and, the, and how constructed our sense of superiority is, it's also a positive thing because it means that our values can shift. It means we can be increasingly inclusive should we want to be. And I think it's um, this is an opportunity um, for us to start doing that. It's not going to be easy, but I think that flexibility is our strength, not our weakness. So I like that. So, so basically, because it's a constructed narrative, we can re or deconstruct it and recreate something more positive. 
That would be my hope. The younger generation, as they usually do, are a wee bit more progressive and are trying to be more inclusive. And hopefully they will start to return to some of the unfinished work of the former generations. Some of that unfinished work is going to be really uncomfortable. How we think about um, the value of other organisms to what kind of duties we have to them. I think that work is the best job we could do at the time to move things forward and get regulatory precedents in place. But it's with the genomics revolution in particular and with things like synthetic biology, with AI, we can already see that the current ethics and the current thinking is not fit for purpose. So we're going to have to go back again and try to be a even more inclusive, push a little bit more and rethink what does it mean to be a wild organism? Is there such a thing? How can we attribute wildness some sort of value versus us instrumentalizing a wild animal through gene editing? These sorts of things are unfinished work and they're going to be incredibly important as we move forward in, in conservation work, for instance. So on the one hand, you've got kind of the future of our species and the manipulation of every aspect of our humanness as well as kind of semi-non-human um, artificial intelligence. And then on the other side, you've got the natural world that um, the World Wildlife Fund just did you know, report three weeks ago showing that 60% of species numbers on the planet have been reduced. We're kind of sandwiched between the natural world and our history and our connection to it and the future, which is unnatural and how do how do we exist in that space well this is the hard intellectual work this has to be done i mean even just talking about what's natural and unnatural and where the dividing line is going to be drawn up for a generation is unclear at this stage for instance there isn't yet a, a working consensus on intrinsic versus extrinsic value so in other words um is a landscape or an animal valuable in its own right in some way and how and why, or is it only valuable uh, because of what it can do for us? The powers that eventually were able to agree to something in Paris, it doesn't feel like they're waiting with bated breath for those philosophical mm -hmm. dilemmas to be resolved. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about these things for several thousand years and we haven't, there has been progress, you know, and there's lots more data now and science has been a great friend of philosophy in a lot of ways. We've got lots of information about understanding ourselves and, and how these sorts of things work. Um, that are helpful to us. And we've got a better understanding of what species are, what hybridization is, all of those kinds of things, you know, none of it is easy. The earth is unspeakably dynamic. We're not going to get perfect thumping answers to any of this. We have to do the best that we can. At this stage, ethicists have got to stand up and wave their hands. And if they don't come up with something, what we will fall back on is going to be precedent or prior intellectual history. And some of those histories are, are really at odds with one another. We need a better moral toolkit to deal with the challenges that we face. And we better get on and do it because the science is moving super fast and it's way outpacing our ethics. Talking of which, just this week, this startling news was heard around the world. A Chinese researcher claims to have helped make the world's first gene-edited babies. 
Twin girls whose DNA he says he altered with a powerful new tool that lets scientists edit the genetic code. I feel a strong responsibility uh, that it's not just to make it first, but also make it uh, as example. Scientist He Jinghui says he edited the baby's genes to try to give them a trait few people naturally have to help them resist HIV infection. Hearing that, how do we get back on track? You need a set of workable guidelines that are clear, and then you set a regulatory framework, and then you set a legal precedent, and things can move forward. And that's what we've seen as the sort of advances in, in bioethics. Because as you say quite rightly, what has happened and what will happen, what will dictate change will be economics, will be the big investors, um, will be someone who can whack a load of data on the table saying, well, this is the number of human lives that will be saved or altered if you do this, or this is going to be the economic outcome. So in the absence of that large moral toolkit, we continue just to make decisions that seem to be solely based on economic criteria. We are so unclear about what our relationship is to other animals and what duties we have to other animals and other living systems that um, whatever decision we make is, is deeply troubled at the moment. And yet the dilemmas are real. We have to find some way of engineering our, our way out of the mess that we're making uh, for, the, for the benefit of all of us. And I, I just see a lot of very tense human-animal conflicts or human sort of, you know, landscape conflicts that are not easy to resolve and that somewhere, somewhere we have to do the work of understanding how to be a good person in that situation, how to be a good society, how to make a good action. And that sum total of what we mean by good is still very difficult to answer. And we've just got to get better at doing that kind of intellectualizing. And that horrifies some people. They don't want to do that work. They want straight data. That's why we fall back on data. It feels easy. But it's not working for us. We can see that. And so we've, we've got to go back to the more difficult business, the old-fashioned business of what is a good action and what kind of action do we want to carry forth into the future? And I think that, that work um, you know, still has to be done. These fundamental concepts that, that each generation should be better off than the next um, seems, you know, seems impossible to reach in a world of finite resources. We... Our, our expectations of what our life should look like, our assumptions about how our life should progress seem to be in conflict materially with the resource constraints of the planet. I'm quite hopeful, actually. In my studies of industrial history, there's two things that are quite clear. Firstly, that we're not often very good at judging what the disaster is. There usually is a disaster. So that's also the other point of this. <laughs> very often with a new technology, something you know, some sort of negative consequence will follow. Some of those consequences can be terrible, like the ozone layer being a classic example um, for CFC's release. Um, but very often we, we're not brilliant at predicting what they're going to be. Um, so we should always be relatively, have a good dose of humility about predicting the future, both positive or negative. 
Um, that said, I think we're quite a, a resourceful lot, have a lot of faith in the work that scientists and engineers do. We've just got to make sure that we're also doing the intellectual work. Um, you know, I, I want that to happen you know, side by side. And of course, we want to flourish. We want other um, forms of life to flourish as well, of which, you know, we're all a part. We're all of the same origin, that even the very processes that give, you know, give rise to us are um, worthy of respect. And we don't know what other life there is in the universe. I'm a great, you know, I'm great, like, yes, please, can there be aliens? I'm rooting for the aliens in my lifetime. But at the same time, for the moment, we're only sure there's viable complex life on this planet. So we better do our very best to look after it. And I think the kind of narratives that we have at the moment about, well, we're screwing it up here, so let's have a backup plan on another planet are disastrous. When we imagine these sorts of things, imagining some worlds in which these sorts of problems have been overcome. But if we're going to do that, we want to overcome them here first. And I don't think we should let ourselves a get out, have a get out clause for that. But, you know, I, I do think we have the capacity to change, actually. I'm quite hopeful about that. Tell us a little bit about the book that you're researching right now. The last kind of 10 years or so, I've been writing a book called How to Be Animal, um, and it's a sort of history of what it means to be human. So it will look at um, a deep history of how we evolved, um, and also the ideas about that history that haven't always been right and have had a little dose of mythology in them. Um, and bring it right through to now, where I'm arguing that actually understanding what humans are and how we think about valuing human life and the lives of other living organisms is absolutely vital while we now have a capacity with things like CRISPR, um, but, you know, AI, all of the fourth industrial revolution kinds of technologies are much more powerful technologies in terms of uh, fundamentally redefining natural organisms and because of that and that's very real that's not speculative um, because of that I feel it's really important that we re rethink what it is to be an animal and my claim fundamentally is that we struggle with being a, an animal at a profound level and we kind of need to get that struggle right um, before we start being too intrusive at the fundamental level of what we are. What would you ask people to think about it's a really big um, subject, but as a small little example, uh, what a synthetic human genome is. It, is it a human? Do we, do we, you know, apply? Is it a different organism? Is it a, just a form of technology? Those sorts of classifications are drive to the heart of some of some of the real difficulties that we have with being animal ourselves. It it frightens us because it exposes. Um, a kind of deep materiality, the fact that we're made of a stuff that can be changed and transformed, that we're made of a stuff that will deliquesce eventually. You know, that's that's intimidating for us to get our heads around um, what we think of that um, and the kind of life cycle that we go through and the, and the matter that we're made from. What it is essentially to be human and what value that has. And, you know, some people dismiss that essentialist perspective, but I think we... It bears much closer scrutiny. 
is human a workable definition? Do we care about it? We certainly build our lives on it. We build our lives, you know, the idea of human dignity is absolutely enshrined in fundamental law and action. Um, but what do we really mean by being a human? And I think we better get pretty good at answering those questions. Melanie and I leave the botanical gardens and walk onto the streets of Cambridge so that she can get her train back to York. Isn't part of it like this religious overlay of the sanctity of human life and that that somehow we've been elevated through this mythology and, and religion that we've created to, to somehow justify our own superiority? Um, yeah, so this would be kind of what people call... Um, human exceptionalism, but there's kind of scientific, quasi-scientific versions of this. And you could argue that humanism as a sort of secular alternative um, to religion, you know, buries within it. We shouldn't throw out that without good thought um, behind it. It may be that even if... So a lot of people about, you know, when we talk about human essences, say, well, they're that's just it's just folk biology it's not you know it's not real it's not justifiable and so we should get rid of it but actually it's really fundamental to the way that children think for instance so it looks to be a very human tendency to to categorize things through essences and there can be negative and positive consequences to that very natural way of thinking but it may be that we value in very positive ways if we can be a bit more knowing about how um, that way of humanizing happens um, and, and more inclusive about the way that that humanizing happens you know maybe it's just an, a mental act of generosity that is a good thing as long as it doesn't um, mean that you draw a dividing line that says nothing else has value i think that's the problem not to try to displace humans and say that they don't have value but to point out that we kind of need to bring everything else along with us on that value journey. Because when you look at any human rights violation um, from Darfur to Rwanda, all the language is about dehumanizing yeah. the, the people that you're subjugating to horrific acts of torture. You justify on the basis that they're subhuman. Yeah, so a really fundamental part of my work is on dehumanisation. And particularly animal, there are different kinds of dehumanisation, particularly animalistic dehumanisation, which um, can take either blatant or subtle forms and can range from turning your eyes away in disgust at a homeless person through to killing your enemy um, or your perceived enemy in in a conflict situation. Um, so it, it, it's, all, it's all on a, a, a spectrum with very, very different outcomes, but it's universal, this um, way of using animals or stripping away what humanizing is in order to either not care about or behave differently towards another person. And I think what's important to remember is that we're capable of humanizing. Chimps do a kind of similar thing. So, you know, they have sort of a chimpization and a de-chimpization where um, 
if someone's going to, for whatever reason, sort of come over, maybe as a mate or as an ally, then they get chimpized within the group. And it can be flexible. I think we, we have this flexible capacity to attribute value. So when we talk about humanization, it's not really about categorizing what human is and what's special about us and what kind of brain we have or don't have. I think that's there's a red herring. It's an act of mental generosity and it's the act of valuing something or someone. Um, it's an alliance, it's a mental alliance. And that humanizing can actually happen towards non-humans without anthropomorphizing. But if we just generalize it as, as a mental act of generosity, we've got the capacity to extend that uh, to non-living. Um, species and I, I think that's that's the way I hope we go. So Mal, I mean it seems like there's two ways to go. One is to extend human qualities and generosity to the rest of the living world and the other is to expand what it means to be human to include all of the rest of the animal world. We're not gonna treat other animals in the same way that we treat humans um, or think about them in exactly the same way. Um, but I think it's just important that we understand that our capacity to humanize, so going back to the idea of seeing ourselves as this sort of the top of creation, um, that, that has many sinister aspects, but it does have a positive aspect as well which is just to give value to a living thing, even if a meteorite doesn't give any value to you, even if the rest of the cosmos doesn't care about you, we can care about ourselves. And I think if, you know, it's just about being generous. Have we lost the touch that does so much? Have we lost the human touch? Thanks so much to Melanie Challenger for talking with us today. It's fascinating how questions of human relevance in the universe play such a pivotal role in shaping our relationship with the natural world around us today. Using philosophy and ethics to help us move into a paradigm driven by questions that promote generosity over greed definitely caught my interest. I can't wait for Melanie's book, How to Be Animal, to be published next year. Next week, we go to Stanford University to examine whether geoengineering solutions can play a role in reversing the melting of the Arctic. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, producer Nancy Ferrandi, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a fabulous week. Podship Earth.